You are listening to Gone But Never Forgotten. Our topics can include, but are not limited to, murder, sexual assault, graphic and gruesome details, and more. These topics are adult in nature and are not meant for everyone. Listener discretion is advised. On June 9, 1959, a 12-year-old girl would disappear in Clinton, Ontario, about 80 kilometers northwest of London, Ontario, from nearby the Royal Canadian Air Force Base. Seemingly, the last person to see her alive would be a young man who was also a classmate of hers at the Air Vice Marshal Hugh Campbell School. The two had gone for a ride on his bicycle. When the young girl did not return home, the young boy would in fact become a suspect in her disappearance. On June 11th, two days after she had gone missing, tragically her body would be found, and on June 12th, the young man would be arrested and charged with first-degree murder. Police felt that this was an open and closed case. Was the easy answer the right one in this case? Or were there going to be questions in this case that still exist today, 63 years later? Hello, and welcome to Gone But Never Forgotten, Episode 49, The Tragedies of Stephen Truscott and Lynn Harper. And welcome back to GBNF. Coming off the four-part series that we just did on serial killer Elizabeth Wetlofer, it will be really refreshing to discuss a new topic with you this week. It certainly will. This case is one that has a little bit of everything if you are a truly a lover of true crime. There really are two tragedies in this case. This is the story of two lives that were forever changed because of a bike ride that was shared between the two of them. It is certainly one of Canada's most talked about and well-known stories, even though it occurred in the 1950s. But before we get to that, I want Lance to tell you about the hard work that he's been doing on YouTube. Well, we decided that our presence on social media is pretty good, but as I looked at YouTube and our videos there, frankly I was disappointed. I've been working tirelessly now at updating the videos for our cases with photos, captions, and any information that I can because I felt that our imprint there was, well, sad. Don't get me wrong, I know that our videos are certainly far from state-of-the-art, but I wanted to leave our footprint there just like we do everywhere else. As we record this, I'm finishing up on episode 42 and will complete updating those videos very soon. In the future, once everything is updated, because we do remove most of the ads from the videos now before posting them on YouTube, the updated videos will drop about a week after the episode drops, just out of fairness to everyone. It has been a lot of work, 
but it's certainly paying off as we've seen quite a spike in subscribers on YouTube. So if you like the show and would like to see a little more visuals, please subscribe to GBNF on YouTube. I also, before we jump into the case, I do want to touch base with our listeners. You guys are goners. Um, obviously, last week we did not have an episode drop. Um, I posted to social media. Um, unfortunately, I was dealing with a really bad illness that put, actually ended up putting me in the hospital. So that was why we didn't have an episode last week. So I do want to apologize for the delay on episode 49. Uh, we do try to get this out every week. So this, that's just my personal thing to you. And I just wanted to let you know that um, while I'm still getting better and uh, going through a lot of stuff, I'm definitely on the mend now as opposed to dying in the trench like I was last week. Well, we're definitely glad to have you back, Lance. So I think that it's time that we dive into today's story. So let's get right into this double tragedy from Clinton, Ontario. Cheryl Lynn Harper, who would go by Lynn, was born on August 31st, 1946 to Leslie and Shirley Harper. She was the middle sibling in the family with an older brother named Barry Harper and a younger brother named Jeffrey Harper. Her father, Leslie, was a school teacher before joining the military in 1940. In July of 1957, the family would relocate to the Royal Canadian Air Force Base in Clinton, Ontario. The area where the family lived is now a part of the rural community that's known as Vanastra. The area is located about 80 kilometers northwest of London, Ontario. Lynn Harper was known as a sweet girl, and she spent most of her time going to Sunday school, Bible classes, and Girl Guides. Girl Guides is a worldwide organization that works towards training girls in the practices of good citizenship, good conduct, and outdoor activities. Lynn attended school at Air Vice Marshal Hugh Campbell School which was located on the north side of the Air Force Base. Canadian Forces Base Clinton, or CFB Clinton, was a Canadian Forces Base that was opened in July of 1941 as RAF Station Clinton. The site was actually used as a training unit for radar operators as this was a time when radar was first being used and it was a top secret device. Servicemen from Canada, the United States and the UK were all trained at Clinton and it would remain as the primary radar testing training site for Canadian forces throughout the entire Cold War era. CFB Clinton would be closed in 1971 and the site would be abandoned in 1972. Lynn lived with her family in the married quarters on the base. On June 9th of 1959, Southern Ontario was stuck in the middle of a heat wave and Lynn came home from school around 5.30 p.m. looking forward to going for a swim to beat the heat on the base. Unfortunately, though, the rules for the pool were that minors needed to either have adult supervision or a permit that allowed for the child to swim without supervision. Neither Shirley nor Leslie was willing or able to accompany Lynn to the pool, so Lynn went to the administrator of the married quarters to attempt to get a permit, but she was unable to. So, she returned home. The family would wind up in a little bit of an argument that night, nothing too major, 
But Lynn was upset that her parents would not accompany her so that she could swim to cool off because of the heat wave. After dinner, around 6.15 p.m., Lynn would leave the house again to go for a walk. About 45 minutes after she left home, around 7 p.m., she would meet up with her classmate Stephen Truscott at the school grounds. Lynn would tell Stephen that she wanted to go visit a man that lived north of Highway 8 who owned ponies. Since Stephen was on his way that way already, headed to the Bayfield River just south of Highway 8 to look for his friends, he agreed to take Lynn with him. Lynn would catch a ride with Stephen on the crossbar of his bike. What happened along this ride and when the two stopped has been a point of contention ever since. Stephen would say that he took Lynn to the intersection of the country road and Highway 8 and he would drop her off and leave her unharmed. He also said that when he arrived at the bridge over the river, he looked back at the intersection where he had left Lynn and he saw that a vehicle, what he described as a gray late model Chevrolet Bel Air with yellow plates, had stopped and that Lynn was in the process of entering the vehicle. Conversely, police would later present the case that they believed that the two had ridden together until they got to the bridge and then the two would wind up in a forested area beside the county road, and that is where they said Stephen raped and killed Lynn. That is quite the discrepancy in stories, uh, like, that's for sure. Certainly not uncommon, though, right? I mean, if there's one thing that we do know after doing almost 50 of these episodes, it's that whether someone is guilty or innocent, they tend to say that they are innocent. In this case, time will of course tell which one Stephen was. But let's backtrack a bit here and make sure that we fill in the entire story. It didn't take long for word to get out that Stephen was the last person to have been with Lynn before she disappeared. And as such, he of course became the suspect in her disappearance. Situations like this one are a little bit strange to me. I always feel like if someone did something that was untoward, the worst thing that they can do is be upfront with information. I mean, if you did rape and kill someone, I don't think that your first instinct would be to own up to police and other people that you had been with her right before whatever happened. I mean, you're right, but you also know that there are many document cases of guilty people doing exactly that in hopes that it keeps them off of the radar rather than on it. We even covered with Bruce MacArthur the way that he willingly sat down with police and gave them information because he didn't want to seem as though he had any guilt. You're right, of course. I just wonder with a boy this young if that really could have been assumed to have been his motive. However, as we will get into later, this was certainly a different time. Lynn's father would report her as missing at around 11.20 p.m. that evening, and things would begin in a fervor. As you said, police were on Stephen pretty much immediately. At approximately 9.30 a.m. on June 10th, 1959, Stephen would be interviewed at the school by Constable Hobbs inside of a police car. That is when Stephen would tell police about the fact that he had seen Lynn getting into that Bel Air after he had left her at the intersection. Of course, the community sprung into action and search parties went out to look for any sign of Lynn or any evidence of what could have possibly happened to her. Unfortunately, it would not take long for a gruesome answer to be found. 
Only two days later, on June 11th, around 1.50 p.m., Lynn's body would be found by an organized search party in Lawson's Bush. Her body would be found naked, and she had been strangled by her own blouse, which was still tied in a knot around her neck. Other articles of her clothing would also be found near her body. The crime, needless to say, sent shockwaves through the small community as they realized that they were not dealing with just a missing girl at all. They were in fact facing a situation where a young girl had been raped and killed. The ripple raced through all of Ontario, and the heinous crime was decried by everyone. The Attorney General in Ontario even took the unprecedented step of announcing that there was a $10,000 reward for the capture dead or alive, of the person that was responsible for the, quote, revolting and savage crime. It didn't take long for the police to spring into action. The Ontario Provincial Police, or OPP, assigned Inspector Harold Graham of their Criminal Investigation Bureau to take the lead on the investigation. The evening after Lynn's body was found, June 12th, Around 7 p.m., Stephen Truscott was taken into custody, and a few hours later, around 2.30 a.m. on June 13th, Stephen was charged with first-degree murder under the provisions of the Juvenile Delinquents Act. The Juvenile Delinquents Act was the law in Canada before it was superseded by the Young Offenders Act. The law was designed to dictate how criminals would be dealt with when they committed crimes. In Stephen's case, he was 14 years old at the time of the arrest and alleged crime. Because of that, he was deemed to be of an age where he knew right from wrong and murder was a capital offense. As such, he was able to be charged with the offense. Just over two weeks later, the edict came down that Stephen Truscott was to be charged as an adult. There was an appeal in that regard, but the appeal was dismissed meaning that Stephen Truscott was not only going to be charged for murder, but if found guilty, he could be sentenced to death. I didn't even think of that. The death penalty in Canada wasn't de facto abolished in Canada until January of 1963, so years after this case. That's crazy. There's a lot of outrage over the treatment of Stephen with the benefit of hindsight here, But we do need to remember that this was a different time and also a very different place. Remember what we said about RAF Clinton earlier. This was a base that was being used by the Allies during the Cold War. This case likely very much was something that the military wanted shut, and very quickly. The less eyes that were drawn to Clinton, the better. Part of the outrage is that in looking back, There were three other people who were looked at as people of interest in the rape and murder of Lynn. However, nobody else was investigated at all. It was full steam ahead on getting Stephen Truscott into a courtroom and through this process as quickly as possible. On September 16th, Stephen's trial started within the Supreme Court of Ontario in Goderich, Ontario, before Justice Ferguson and a jury. Every piece of evidence that was presented in that courtroom was considered to be circumstantial, meaning that the evidence pointed to the fact that Stephen could be guilty of the crime. However, there was no evidence that conclusively proved that Stephen had committed any crime. The entire prosecution was centered on one thing. They placed Lynn's death within a short period of time, and that time frame coincided with the time that it was known 
that Stephen and Lynn had been together riding on his bike. Their key piece of evidence was the report from the autopsy that showed the decomposition of Lynn's body and the state of the partially digested food in her stomach, and they said that that showed that she had indeed died at the precise time that she was known to have been with Stephen. I have to think that nowadays this hopefully wouldn't fly. Not to say that the legal system is perfect in Canada, it certainly is not, but the fact that they presented a case before a jury that said really two things and that was enough is crazy. They proved that Lynn had died somewhere close to the time that she was with Stephen and they proved that Stephen had been with Lynn around the time in question. And the only reason that that was even proven was because Stephen told them that himself. That's absolutely crazy to me. Yeah, I mean, the one thing here, too, I mentioned it a second ago, but, like, you know, we look at cases now where, you know, three years or more sometimes later, um, you finally see a case go to court. Like, if you look at the timeline on this, like I said, it was so fast. They just wanted everything to be sealed up, tied in a nice bow, dealt with so that nobody was looking at this case, Clinton, Ontario, the the RAF base, none of it. They just wanted it to go away. It's true. They didn't want more attention on the base, for sure. Exactly. And speaking of that, two weeks after the case started, it was done. On September 30th, the jury would return to the courtroom with a verdict of guilty. They also recommended mercy, meaning that they recommended that Stephen not receive the death penalty. Justice Ferguson, though, was not having any of that. He sentenced Stephen Truscott to death by hanging. I know that we already established that this was a very different time and place in our history, but that sounds crazy to me. Stephen was 14 years old and he was sentenced to death. This made him the youngest ever death row inmate in Canadian history. His execution was to be scheduled for December 8th of 1959. On November 20th, his hanging was postponed until 1960 so that his appeals could work their way through the courts. My thoughts with this case are all over the place. I know that in the past I've said that I support the notion that young offenders should be given the benefit of at least a chance at a second chance. But in the same breath, I actually do support the death penalty in murder cases where, and this is key, where it's proven beyond a shadow of a doubt that the murderer is the murderer. Right, and this case certainly left a lot more uh, than just doubt here. Yeah, that's for sure. You're certainly not alone in that line of thinking, though, and you wouldn't be wrong if you felt that way back then, either. The death sentence did not sit well with a lot of people. Even though young Lynn had lost her life, there were those that believed that the sentence was very heavy-handed. In fact, Stephen's legal team got to work on an appeal that was presented at the Court of Appeal for Ontario. On January 21st, 1960, that appeal also was dismissed. However, the public outcry was not lost on the government of Canada here, and they immediately commuted Stephen's sentence to life imprisonment the following day. Thankfully for Stephen, he had been spared from a hanging. Luckily for everyone, as we're about to find out. This case was one that everyone was aware of at this time. Scrutiny of the case never went away, and in 1966, Isabelle Le Bourdais released a book called The Trial of Stephen Truscott. 
and the book would talk about the numerous flaws in this case that was presented by the prosecution. The Supreme Court of Canada was asked to review the case and Stephen's conviction. In October of 1966, they did just that and heard five days of testimony and further examined the case in January of 1967. On May 4, 1967, by a vote of 8 to 1, the justices upheld the case and the conviction. They said, quote, There were many incredibilities inherent in the evidence given by Truscott before us, and we do not believe his testimony, unquote. As such, that means that for all intents and purposes, Stephen was still considered to have been guilty of rape and murder. From the time of his arrest until the government commuted the death sentence, Stephen was imprisoned at the Huron County Jail in Godrich. After his sentence was commuted to a life sentence, Stephen would be transferred to Kingston Penitentiary for assessment, and he was then held at the Ontario Training School for Boys in Guelph from February of 1960 until January of 1963. In January of 1963, he would then be transferred to Collins Bay Penitentiary. On May 7, 1967, Stephen would be transferred to the farm annex of Collins Bay Penitentiary, and then on October 21, 1969, Stephen was released on parole and he lived in Kingston, Ontario with his parole officer, and then in Vancouver for a short time before finally settling in Guelph, Ontario under a different name. So, from June 12, 1959, until October 21, 1969, Stephen was a prisoner within Canada's prison system, and even after that, he spent time living with his parole officer, and under terms of parole until November 12, 1974. So, 10 years in jail and 15 years in total for murder and rape. I am sure, even at this point, that brings to mind some arguments. How could he be released after 10 years in jail? Well, at this point, I think it all harkens back to his age. Stephen Truscott, by all accounts, was a model prisoner. But one thing was always true. Stephen always maintained that he was innocent in the death of Lynn Harper as well. I think at his age then, combined with the fact that many thought that the case was dirty, all of that led to his release at the age of 24. That makes sense. After his release, under the assumed name, Stephen would get married and have three children in the Guelph area. For many, many years, Stephen simply stayed out of the public eye, but in 1997, he decided that he wanted to attempt to clear his name, almost 40 years after the crime, using DNA from the case. Obviously, DNA evidence was not a thing back in the 1950s. Stephen would stop using an assumed name at this point and would return to his original name. Unfortunately, as things slowly made their way through the system to conduct that DNA evidence, in 2000, it was discovered that all physical evidence pertaining to the case had disappeared. It appeared that all had been lost for Stephen. Until another book came out that was examining the case. Julian Schur came out with a book entitled until You Are Dead, in 2001, and it looked at all of the evidence that was in favor of Stephen being innocent. All of that evidence was cast aside in the original trial. Then, on November 28, 2001, James Lockyer and the Association in Defense of the Wrongly Convicted filed an appeal to have Lynn's case reopened. 
On January 24th of 2002, a retired justice from Quebec, Fred Kaufman, was appointed by the Canadian government to look into the case, and in October of 2004, Justice Minister Erwin Kotler directed the Court of Appeal for Ontario to look into whether or not new evidence could have changed the verdict in 1959. Then, because all of the evidence had been destroyed from the case, on April 6th of 2006, the body of Lynn Harper was exhumed by order from the Attorney General of Ontario in order to test for DNA evidence. There was a lot of hope regarding this exhumation, but unfortunately, with so much time gone by, there was not any usable DNA to be recovered from the remains of Lynn. Failing the DNA, investigators would look into other avenues to try and garner evidence that could possibly have changed over the years with the advancements in technology. Investigators would focus in next on the insects that were on Lynn's body when she was found, which included blowflies and maggots. It was believed that the insect activity could raise reasonable doubt for sure as to the timeline that had been attributed to Lynn's death and the subsequent suspicion and guilty verdict towards Stephen. The evidence had the ability to cast doubt, even as far as Lynn not being killed until the following day. However, the evidence did not disqualify that original timeline that tied Stephen to the murder. And thus, once again, Stephen Truscott's case was taken in front of the Court of Appeal for Ontario on June 19th, 2006, 47 years and 10 days after Lynn Harper had gone missing. There was a panel of five judges that heard three weeks of testimony and fresh evidence that had been provided with the benefit of technology. One of the new pieces of evidence included early draft autopsy reports from the autopsy that was done on Lynn. Those reports contradicted the expressed small window of time for when Lynn had been murdered. Pathologist Dr. John Penniston had initially stated that there were three different time estimates for the murder of Lynn. Two out of the three estimates would have disqualified Stephen Truscott as a suspect. It was only after the police had fronted Stephen Truscott as the prime suspect that evidence stating forensic proof that Lynn had died exactly around the time that she was with Stephen was provided. At the time of the initial trial, his draft reports were concealed from the defense team and the court. Enough evidence had been provided to show that there was indeed a lot of reasonable doubt that was not allowed to see the light of day at the initial trial. On August 28, 2007, the Court of Appeal acquitted Stephen on all charges. The defense team had tried to get a declaration of factual innocence from the Court of Appeal, but the court said that while there was indeed enough evidence to show that there was reasonable doubt that Stephen had murdered Lynn, they did not see enough evidence to claim unequivocally that he was innocent. Attorney General of Ontario Michael Bryant would, however, apologize to Stephen on behalf of the provincial government and let him know that they were truly sorry for the miscarriage of justice back in 1959. What an end to an incredibly long journey for Stephen. Though, there are many, including members of Lynn's family, that still believe that Stephen Truscott was indeed the murderer. Stephen would actually get a settlement for $6.5 million from the province of Ontario for being wrongfully convicted. 
Lynn's brother, Barry, would say that that payout was a real travesty. I mean, I guess I can see that. In the absence of any other answers for all of these years, for them, I can see how it has to be Stephen Truscott that killed Lynn. But at the same time, Stephen had an entirely new life. A new name, a family. He did leave all of this behind him. So in the end, why would he go to all of this trouble to clear his name when it wasn't even his name if all of this was really in his past? I can see with the end result that you could say money, I guess. But Stephen certainly put it all on the line by becoming Stephen Truscott again and fighting for that name to be cleared. His name was already gone, but he wanted everyone to know that Stephen Truscott did not kill Lynn Harper. So what that leaves us with then is a new story, all of these years later. On June 9th, 1959, a 12-year-old girl named Lynn Harper would go for a walk and wind up at the school that she attended on the base. There, she would run into one of her classmates, Stephen Truscott. The two would ride, Stephen on the bike and Lynn on the crossbar, to an intersection between the county road and Highway 8. Presumably, the two parted ways and Stephen continued to look for his friends while something terrible, perhaps involving a vehicle, happened to Lynn. Lynn Harper was raped and murdered that day as someone choked her with her own clothing and took the innocence and the life of a very young lady who had her entire life ahead of her. Two days later, Stephen Truscott would be charged in regards to those indiscretions, though he would later have the convictions overturned when there was not enough evidence to continue to view him as the killer of Lynn Harper. Throughout the years, there have been many a theory and many books written on this case. Some of those we've discussed here today. We've decided that we do not want to name names of people that others have pointed fingers at, as we try not to do any of that across any of our cases. One thing, though, is certain. On that hot summer day, someone took it upon themselves to rape and take the life of a young girl. And now, as so much time has passed by, the reality is that this case may never be solved. However, as we always do with cases like this one, we appeal to everyone that's listening out there. If you know something, have been told something, or have even a small piece of information that you think could help, pick up a phone and call the police or Crime Stoppers and let them know what you know. The amount of time that has passed doesn't matter when it comes to things like this. Everyone that had a part in Lynn Harper's life and anyone who has had a part of this investigation deserves to be able to close the book on this case once and for all. So we will throw it to you, our listeners. Hit us up on social media and let us know what you think of this case. Do you think that Stephen Truscott was guilty or was the right move made in acquitting him of all charges? Do you have an opinion based on your own research in this case? What do you think happened? Let us know. We would love to chat about it and hear what other people think. I think that that's where we'll take this case and we'll leave it for now. Oh, and we'll take it over to social media. Come let us know where your head is at. And don't forget to check out our revamped YouTube page if you would like to see more photos and visuals to go with this or any other case. 
And finally, please don't forget to join us as a listener, supporter, obsessor, or partner over on Patreon and show your support for the show. Aside from that, you all have two more jobs in the next week. First, hashtag be better in the world and to all the people around you. And second, come back next week and join us for our 50th episode of Gone But Never Forgotten.